0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me to give this lecture on this extremely important topic. Climate change is one of the most pressing social justice issues of our time. Caused primarily by the greenhouse gas emissions of the world's most affluent populations, its consequences are being experienced most acutely by those who contributed least to the problem and have the fewest resources to protect themselves from harm, including the small island states, the least developed countries, indigenous peoples, and the poor. Climate change is predicted to displace between 25 million and 1 billion people by 2050. However, international law does not currently confer legal status on climate-displaced persons who cross international borders. Neither the 1951 Refugee Convention nor the climate treaties address the plight of people who seek refuge in other countries as a consequence of climate change. The climate crisis is unfolding at a time of growing economic inequality and rising racial tensions. Since 1980, income inequality has soared in all regions of the world, squeezing the global middle class and enriching the top one percent. As the gap between the rich and the poor increases, authoritarian leaders and nationalist social movements are increasingly directing public anger at immigrants and at racial and ethnic minorities. The result is mass incarceration, mass shootings, and mass detention and deportation. The response to date of the United States, the European Union, and Australia to migrants and refugees fleeing poverty and conflict does not bode well for persons displaced by climate change. Human rights organizations have lambasted the United States for its incarceration of Central American refugees, for its separation of children from their families, and for the cruel and inhumane conditions of confinement. The European Union's restrictive immigration policies have resulted in the death of thousands of African and Middle Eastern migrants who tried to cross the Mediterranean. Australia's policies are probably among the worst the indefinite detention of migrants in offshore processing facilities in the island states of Nauru and Papua New Guinea under conditions so horrific that Amnesty International has condemned them as a human rights catastrophe. While climate displacement will affect all countries, my presentation will focus on the obligations of affluent countries, i.e. the global north, to climate displaced persons because these high-emitting countries are disproportionately responsible for climate change. My presentation makes two key points. First is that a race-conscious analysis of climate change can help us develop a robust conception of climate justice that enables us to build a movement for social change. Secondly, that a race-conscious analysis of climate change can give us better tools to evaluate the emerging legal and policy approaches to climate change-induced displacement. Any discussion of climate change must necessarily address climate justice. Climate change raises at least four distinct types of justice concerns. Climate change raises issues of distributive justice because the world's most affluent populations achieved a high standard of living through their profitless consumption of fossil fuels. However, the consequences of this fossil fuel consumption are being borne disproportionately by the people whose greenhouse gas emissions are the lowest, and whose poverty makes them extremely vulnerable to harm. Climate change raises issues of procedural justice, because the high-emitting countries dominate the institutions of global economic and environmental governance, and they have done everything in their power to perpetuate dependence on fossil fuels. Climate change is a manifestation of corrective injustice because those who bear the greatest harm, including indigenous peoples and the small island states, have been unable to obtain redress for their injuries. Finally, climate change raises broader issues of social justice because it is inextricably linked to an economic system that has produced extremes of wealth and poverty while overshooting planetary boundaries. My work on climate change and race is grounded in political economy, specifically in the work of political theorist Cedric Robinson. Robinson argued that Capitalism and race co-evolved and are inextricably intertwined. The extraction of wealth from nature was implemented through the dispossession and conquest of indigenous peoples, through slavery, and through the colonial and post-colonial domination by white Euro-American elites of large segments of the world's populations. Even though colonialism formally ended in the decades following World War II, the racialized distinctions introduced during the colonial period continue to structure social and economic relations. For purposes of this presentation, I define racism as the dehumanization and objectification of human beings based on a variety of factors, most commonly physical characteristics, such as skin color, but also ethnicity, indigeneity, language, religion, culture and geographic origin. Who is racialized and how they are racialized varies across time and location. It is historically contingent, not phenotypically predetermined. Once upon a time, light-skinned persons of Middle Eastern descent were considered white. Increasingly, they are branded as potential terrorists and subjected to racist exclusionary policies, such as the US government's ban on immigrants from certain Muslim countries. Conversely, groups that are now classified as white, such as Jews and the Irish, have a very long history of being regarded as non-white. This is a famous photograph from the 1968 Memphis sanitation worker strike in which African-American workers protested dangerous working conditions, abuse, and discrimination by the city. The dehumanization was so overwhelming that the signs simply proclaimed, I am a man. The Black Lives Matter movement is a contemporary example of the resistance of racialized communities to violence and dehumanization. This is a photo... Taken in June 2019 at an overcrowded immigrant detention facility in McAllen, Texas. The cruelty inflicted on the detainees, especially the children, is yet another example of dehumanization and a harbinger of future responses to climate displacement. Professor Boaventura de Souza Santos, who teaches at the University of Wisconsin Law School, coined the term the abyssal line to articulate the way law and custom draw a line between persons deemed fully human and those deemed less than human. Conflicts above the abyssal line are resolved through discourses of liberty, equality, and autonomy. Those below the abyssal line are regarded as non-human and subjected to racist violence, lawlessness, and dispossession. For example... An African-American student in a predominantly white university may experience bias from fellow students who don't socialize with him, who don't include him in their study groups. He may also feel alienated by a curriculum that fails to address racial subordination and by the absence of faculty of color. His exclusion is painful, but he still possesses certain rights as a student including the ability to organize with like-minded students and demand institutional change. However, when that African-American student is accosted in a park by a group of white supremacists who beat him and nearly kill him, he has experienced abyssal exclusion, violence, objectification, and dehumanization. The difference between abyssal and non-abyssal exclusion is not the intensity of the suffering inflicted, but the indifference and impunity with which it is inflicted. The racialized abyssal line is mapped onto space in the form of stigmatized geographic locations, including ghettos, reservations, prisons, war zones, refugee camps, and places devastated by mining, petroleum drilling, and polluting industry where the land and the people have been rendered expendable and disposable. Racial thinking makes inequality and injustice socially acceptable. It allows state and corporate actors to pursue policies that are catastrophic to the planet and its many life forms because much of the immediate cost is borne by so-called surplus people and places. The most extreme examples of violence and dehumanization are perhaps Guantanamo, Palestine, Darfur, Yemen, and Iraq. But this abyssal line is also evident in the prisons and migrant detention centers of the US, Australia, and the European Union. Race is embedded in the history of the fossil fuel economy, and sadly, in the emerging green energy economy as well. From its beginning to the present, Fossil fuel-based capitalism is profoundly racialized. First, the colonization of the Americas and the transatlantic slave trade established the foundations of an economic system based on the abuse of nature, the exploitation of labor, the dispossession of indigenous peoples, and the ideology of white supremacy. The colonization of the Americas resulted in the genocide of approximately 50 million indigenous peoples. Let me repeat that number, 50 million. So many people died that farming collapsed and the forests rebounded, causing a significant dip in carbon dioxide emissions. This dip in carbon emissions was so huge that it has left traces in Antarctic ice cores. The genocide of indigenous peoples was followed by the importation of slaves from Africa. Economic historians have established that the Industrial Revolution, which inaugurated the age of fossil fuels, has its origins in the overseas plantations that supplied food for the European workforce, cotton for the textile industry, and markets for the manufactured goods produced in Europe. Colonization, slavery, and the racist ideologies that supported these endeavors are therefore central rather than peripheral to carbon capitalism. Second, the slow violence of the fossil fuel industry has a disproportionate impact on racialized and poor communities all over the world. From the Niger Delta to the Canadian tar sands to the tribes affected by the oil pipelines at Standing Rock Communities classified as non-white are disproportionately affected by oil drilling, fracking, petroleum refineries, power plants, and oil and gas pipelines. Indeed, there is currently an explosion of oil and gas development in Louisiana and Texas, and the affected communities are disproportionately working-class whites and people of color. Third. Fossil fuels are concentrated in certain areas of the world, such as the Middle East, that have been targeted over and over for invasion, occupation, and exploitation. And when displaced Muslim and Arab populations seek refuge in Europe and the United States, they are racially profiled, classified as potential terrorists, and excluded. Fourth... Those most susceptible to climate-related disasters and slow-onset events are overwhelmingly persons classified as non-white. They live in areas disproportionately exposed to hurricanes, floods, droughts, rising sea levels, and desertification. They have been, but they have been rendered vulnerable through colonialism and its aftermath. Walter Rodney, Eduardo Galeano, and many other scholars have written about the ways that colonialism underdeveloped the global south. The plunder of resources did not end after formal independence, but continued through international economic law and institutions, such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. These northern interventions into the south have increased poverty, and deprived countries of the resources needed for climate adaptation and disaster response and recovery. Finally, racialized communities in the global south are being displaced not only by climate change, military interventions, and neoliberal economic policies, but also by the measures designed to mitigate climate change. Wind farms have been constructed on indigenous lands in Oaxaca, Mexico, to provide energy to Walmart, Coca-Cola, and Heineken. Local communities are not receiving any of the benefits, and they're not being compensated for damage and loss of land. A controversial proposal to build a mega dam in Canada's Peace River to produce green energy threatens to produce massive displacement of indigenous peoples, replicating another sacrifice zone for the benefit of the society at large. In Brazil and many other countries in the Global South, forest conservation projects designed to mitigate climate change are being undertaken in ways that interfere with the rights of local and indigenous communities to harvest plants, timber, and fish. And finally, small farmers in the Global South are being evicted from their lands by large-scale plantations that cultivate and export crops to the United States and the European Union for the production of biofuels. To add insult to injury, many of these biofuels, including corn-based ethanol and diesel derived from palm oil, actually emit more greenhouse gases than the fossil fuels they replace. The racialized abyssal line is the thread that unites these abuses. The fact that certain people are classified as inferior and subhuman and therefore disposable. Racialization is not simply about bias and lack of equal opportunity, but about life and death. In the words of geographer Ruth Wilson Gilmore, racism is a state-sanctioned or extra-legal production of group differentiated vulnerability to premature death. Going back to the first point of my paper, A race-conscious narrative of climate change, of the life cycle of fossil fuels, has the potential to unite diverse social movements that reject militarism, mass incarceration, immigrant detention and deportation, racism, indigenous dispossession, and neoliberal globalization that systematically produces poverty and displacement. One of the greatest tragedies of the modern era is that climate change is regarded by many as an issue that only environmental law specialists should care about and only an issue of concern to elites. The racialized abyssal line is one way of connecting these seemingly unrelated social struggles. As an international law scholar, a lot of my work looks at the impacts of international law in both creating and solving the problem of climate change. International law has not been an innocent bystander to the dehumanization of persons classified as non-white. International law has been used to justify successive interventions into the global south in the name of bringing civilization and enlightenment to the so-called barbarians, and has created the abyssal lines that ensure that black and brown bodies do not matter. Professor Anthony Angie in his work, which I've cited here, discusses some of the doctrines that have been used to justify colonial and post-colonial domination by Euro-Americans of much of what is now known as the Global South. These include the doctrine of terra nullius and the doctrine of discovery that were used to dispossess indigenous peoples. The mandate system after World War II, after World War I, excuse me, trusteeship after World War II, modernization, development, and most recently, preemptive self-defense. International law depicted southern peoples as so primitive, uncivilized, and backward that their lives, livelihoods, and cultures are not worth protecting. Elites in the global south have internalized these ideologies and have used them to subjugate their own people in the name of modernization and development. From the colonial era to the present... International economic law has created the legal frameworks and institutions that allow the North to continue to siphon wealth from the South, including trade law, foreign investment law, and finance law. Even the concept of sustainable development, which seeks to integrate economic development, social development, and environmental protection, has been hijacked by economic elites to promote economic growth at the expense of the poor and at the expense of the planet's fragile ecosystems. International environmental law has tinkered at the margins of global environmental problems without addressing squarely the laws and institutions that perpetuate social, economic, and environmental injustice. In the next part of my presentation, I will talk about how the treaties governing climate change address the problem of displacement. Climate change, to reiterate, is an injustice rather than a misfortune because it is caused by the greenhouse gas emissions of the affluent but has a disproportionate impact on those who contributed the least to the problem. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, this is the basic treaty on climate change, recognizes explicitly that developed countries, i.e. the global north, are responsible for the largest share of historic and current greenhouse gas emissions. It adopts an important principle known as common but differentiated responsibility. According to this principle, all states have an obligation to address global environmental degradation, but these obligations are differentiated. Those who contributed the most to the problem bear the greatest responsibility to address it. In accordance with this principle, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change directs the global north to take the lead in combating climate change and to provide financing and technology transfer to the global south. The Paris Agreement, which was negotiated in 2015, reaffirms the principle of common but differentiated responsibility and for the first time in an environmental treaty refers to climate justice and to human rights including the rights of migrants. The objective of the Paris Agreement is to limit global temperature increases to no more than two degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels, and to strive to limit it to no more than 1.5 degrees. Because the countries that gathered in Paris were unable to figure out a fair allocation of responsibility for climate change, The Paris Agreement adopted what is known as a bottom-up approach. Each country voluntarily puts forward its own nationally determined emission reduction commitment. Each country agrees to ratchet up that commitment every five years. Unfortunately, studies have concluded that even if all nations comply with their greenhouse gas reduction commitments, we will likely see a global temperature increase of more than three degrees centigrade. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the organization of scientists that reports periodically on climate change a three-degree centigrade increase above pre-industrial levels will submerge the small island states, inundate large parts of Bangladesh, the Nile Delta, and the Mekong Delta, and flood the world's megacities, including New York, Mumbai, and Shanghai. Indeed, in its October 2018 special report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warns that even two degrees centigrade is not enough and would be catastrophic, the report concluded that we must remain below the 1.5 degree threshold in order to avoid the most catastrophic consequences of climate change. Unless aggressive action is taken to reduce the gap between the emissions reductions pledged and what is required to avoid catastrophic climate change, the world could experience one of the largest waves of migration and displacement in human history. Developing countries have, for years, demanded a mechanism in the climate regime to provide compensation for harms caused by climate change that cannot be avoided through adaptation, a so-called loss and damage mechanism. For the first time in the history of the climate treaties, the Paris Agreement explicitly includes a provision on loss and damage. Indeed, a task force has been created to address the problem of climate displacement. Because this task force is in its infancy, the final section of my presentation will examine and critique the emerging legal and policy responses to climate change. As I noted at the beginning of my presentation, international law does not currently provide legal status to climate displaced persons. If they cross international borders, they, are, they currently face detention, deportation, and criminal prosecution. So what are the emerging proposals for dealing with the problem of displacement? The first approach is the national security approach. Environmentalists in the global north have often invoked the specter of mass migration to prod states into doing something about climate change now. Sadly, this approach has stoked racism and xenophobia. The result is a military response, the hardening of borders and the construction of walls. Instead of evoking empathy for the plight of migrants or responsibility for causing climate change, the national security approach reinforces the abyssal line by provoking fear of black and brown bodies threatening the sovereignty of affluent nations. This approach depicts the North as rational and the South as chaotic and menacing. It draws upon and reinforces racialized distinctions between us and them, citizen and foreigner. The legal response that corresponds to the national security approach is enhanced border control and punitive measures to deter migration, such as the current policy of the US government toward Central American refugees who are fleeing not only poverty and violence, but also severe droughts related to climate change. Instead of providing a safe haven for refugees, the US, Europe, and Australia are increasingly criminalizing migration and erecting greater barriers to entry. Migrants who manage to cross the militarized borders of these countries are frequently locked up in detention facilities, denied legal representation, and required to prove their eligibility for asylum under the 1951 Refugee Convention with no legal assistance whatsoever. The Refugee Convention only protects the tiny minority of migrants who can prove that they have a well-founded fear of persecution in their country of origin for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. Those who are fleeing the consequences of climate change do not fall within this definition. Amending the Refugee Convention to include climate refugees has been proposed as one of the solutions to climate displacement. This strategy is unlikely to succeed due to lack of political will. But even if it did, climate refugees would likely face the same obstacles that asylum seekers are currently facing, including increasingly impenetrable borders, detention, lack of legal representation, and the impossible burden of proving that the reason they left is specifically related to climate change. A second response to climate displacement is the humanitarian approach. In contrast to the national security approach, The humanitarian approach depicts climate migrants as victims of misfortune who need to be protected by the international community. The paradigmatic example is the portrayal of small island developing states as vulnerable, isolated, helpless, and passive. The humanitarian approach reinforces the abyssal line, by casting the North as the savior of the world's downtrodden while ignoring the North's current and historic contribution to both climate change and to poverty and inequality. The Nansen Initiative is an example of a non-binding legal framework based on the humanitarian approach. The Nansen Initiative is the only legal framework that sets out a series of principles to better protect persons who are displaced by disasters, including disasters associated with climate change. The initiative was endorsed by more than 100 government delegations in Geneva, And instead of calling for a new treaty, this initiative focuses on integrating effective practices into existing bodies of law. The Nonsense Initiative is a step forward relative to the national security approach, but it is problematic in four distinct ways. First, its emphasis on charity rather than common but differentiated responsibility is inconsistent with international climate law. Climate change is not like an earthquake. It is an injustice, not a misfortune. The humanitarian approach absolves the global north of its historic responsibility for climate change. Second, the humanitarian approach's reliance on voluntary implementation will likely fail. Given the ongoing exclusion of people fleeing conflicts in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, many of which were instigated by the global north, it is doubtful that affluent northern countries will suddenly open their arms to climate-displaced persons. Third, the humanitarian approach may reinforce the abyssal line by portraying climate-vulnerable states and peoples as primitive, backward, and in need of rescue. Instead of recognizing the ways that slavery, colonialism, military invasion, and the imposition of neoliberal economic reforms by the IMF, the World Bank, and trade and investment law have deprived climate-vulnerable states of the resources they need to adapt to climate change and recover from disasters. Finally, the state-centric nature of the humanitarian approach may ignore the priorities and perspectives of climate-displaced persons and raise procedural justice issues. The humanitarian approach disregards how climate displaced persons understand their own experience and may deprive them of the opportunity to exercise self-determination with respect to potential strategies to address climate change. For example, Pacific Islanders have generally rejected the label of helpless victims or climate refugees and have emphasized their long history of resilience in the face of social and environmental challenges and their right to determine when, whether, how, and where they will migrate. The third approach that has emerged is the migration management approach. This approach casts migrants not as passive victims nor as security threats. Instead, this approach treats climate migrants as entrepreneurs engaged in self-help who enhance the resilience of vulnerable communities by taking temporary jobs abroad and sending money back home to their families in the form of remittances. Instead of requiring the North to transfer resources to the South to finance climate change adaptation and prevent displacement, the migration management approach treats climate change as an unavoidable misfortune and places the burden of climate change adaptation squarely on the shoulders of the world's most climate vulnerable populations. Remittances, rather than financial contributions from the global north, are supposed to finance the measures to promote climate resilience. This approach is problematic for several reasons. First, the migration management approach is not grounded in common, but differentiated responsibility and thus absolves the global north of its obligations to migrants based on its fair share of responsibility for climate change. Second, this approach, like the humanitarian approach, is voluntary. It does not obligate the north to open its borders to climate refugees, but permits it to cherry-pick desirable immigrants. Who are likely to be the desirable immigrants? Those who are young able-bodied, highly educated, and light-skinned. Who are likely to be the undesirable immigrants who are left behind or thrust below the abyssal line or who enter as undocumented workers? Those who are darker-skinned, older, poorer, disabled, children, or who come from disfavored geographic locations. Third, this approach does not require the North to grant even the migrants it allows in labor rights, social safety nets, and the right to protest abusive working conditions. There is a human rights treaty that protects the rights of migrant workers, the 1990 Convention on the Protection of the Rights of Migrant Workers and Their Families. Not a single labor-importing country in the global north has ratified this treaty. Zero. Finally, migration can produce a brain drain labor shortages, and dependence on erratic remittances. And this can increase the vulnerability of populations that are essentially trapped, that don't have the resources to leave, and that are often primarily women, children, the elderly, the poor, and the disabled. So in sum, all three approaches reinforce the racialized abyssal line. The national security approach constructs climate-displaced persons as security threats, that have to be neutralized by the global north through militarized borders. The humanitarian approach portrays climate displaced persons as passive victims in need of rescue by northern saviors, a form of charity rather than corrective justice. The migration management approach depicts climate displaced persons as self-reliant entrepreneurs to whom the global north owes no responsibility, even though it is the north that has rendered their homes uninhabitable. I now want to talk about the approaches that are being proposed by climate-vulnerable states and peoples. Climate-vulnerable states and peoples are calling for high-emitting nations to provide adaptation financing to prevent displacement, compensation for loss and damage, and relocation assistance if migration becomes necessary. They are demanding that the North take responsibility for causing climate change and agree to take into their borders their fair share of persons displaced by climate change. But the framework they are articulating is based on the collective right of climate-displaced persons to self-determination. These states and peoples reject narratives that portray them as savages, victims, or entrepreneurs and instead define themselves as political subjects who collectively determine their own fates. Their goal is to preserve cultural integrity, community cohesion, and self-government so as to migrate with dignity. In the South Pacific, for example, post-colonial thinkers have pointed out that active travel among the islands was the norm prior to the imposition of colonial borders. This is true in most parts of the world as well and they're calling for solutions that transcend conventional notions of the nation state. Their preference is to adapt in place, to stay on the lands that have been in their families for generations and they're deeply connected to their cultures. If this is not possible, they demand the right to migrate individually or collectively to other states. The self-determination approach calls for states to make territory and resources available to climate-displaced persons as a form of compensation for climate change. These demands will be resisted. They will be reinterpreted as collective self-help. At the same time, it would be foolish to ignore the ways that climate-change-induced displacement will transform international law. If climate change is allowed to destroy whole economies and nations, no amount of guns, barbed wire, border walls, or militarized border patrols will keep people from doing what they need to do to survive. We need to collectively reimagine state sovereignty in a climate change world and figure out what justice requires with respect to those who have been displaced by climate change racial capitalist critique of the evolving approaches to climate displacement must also ask who benefits from the exclusionary and restrictive immigration policies that we see today. There are at least five categories of beneficiaries. First, the defense contractors, security firms, and for-profit detention centers that receive government contracts to provide surveillance, border walls, and detention facilities. Some of these corporations are the same ones that benefit from mass incarceration and the never ending wars in the Middle East. Second is the security apparatus of the state that sees itself balloon. Third is the businesses that exploit migrant workers, especially those who are undocumented. Fourth is the criminal enterprises that engage in human trafficking and can charge higher fees when border controls increase. And then finally, the elites in the global north who scapegoat migrants and other racialized communities in order to mobilize support from poor whites for policies that intensify economic inequality and hasten catastrophic climate change. There's a new book that I would highly recommend. It's called Dying of Whiteness by Jonathan Metzel. It was published in 2019, and it explains how racism persuades poor whites to support policies that are literally killing them and to oppose policies that would significantly improve their quality of life, including gun control, expansion of Medicaid coverage under the Affordable Care Act, and higher taxes on corporations and affluent individuals to finance education, social safety nets, infrastructure investment, and environmental protection. As I read the book, I thought about the Trump supporters in Cancer Alley and Appalachian Coal Country. In fact, there's an earlier book um, by Arlene Hochschild who interviewed working class whites in Cancer Alley and drew very similar conclusions to those in dying of whiteness. Racism is an obstacle to the solidarity required to address climate change and climate displacement because it blames racialized communities for the misery inflicted on them. Racism makes injustice acceptable by portraying large segments of humanity as inferior, unworthy, surplus, disposable, and a threat to civilization. Racism persuades poor whites, including those who have been poisoned in the sacrifice zones of the fossil fuel economy, to support authoritarian leaders whose policies increase economic equality and exacerbate climate change. Climate change and other forms of ecological devastation may hit poor communities of color first, but they are also wreaking havoc with everyone's climate, as well as the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the food resources available to us. Racism creates a wedge between communities that should be operating in solidarity. As economic inequality increases, and the planet's ecosystems are brought to the brink of collapse, all of us are subject to abyssal exclusion. Racism creates an electorate that would rather sink the whole ship, except for the yachts of the 1%, even though they too will drown, rather than investing in the lifeboats that are needed to save all of us. An approach to climate justice that recognizes abyssal exclusion has the potential to move climate change from the margins of policy discourse to the center by forging and fostering alliances among people concerned about a range of issues that happen to be interconnected including war and peace, racial justice, poverty alleviation, immigrant rights, economic justice, indigenous rights, abuse of policing, mass incarceration, the privatization of essential government services, the rape and pillage of nature, and the ongoing subordination of the states and peoples of the global south. I want to conclude with a quote from Naomi Klein. The anti-austerity people rarely talk about climate change. The climate change people rarely talk about war or occupations. We rarely make the connection between the guns that take black lives on the streets of US cities and in police custody and the much larger forces that annihilate so many black lives on arid land and in precarious boats around the world. Climate change and climate displacement touch all of these areas. And the racialized abyssal line is a cross-cutting theme that unites these struggles. Thank you so much for your attention.
0: So the first thing I thought of, just to get things going, uh, is this sort of made me think of the irony of the fact that we now sort of have an international youth movement um, in the world uh, led by um, a young white woman, Greta Thunberg, um, and your thoughts on the potential of that as a movement to address some of the issues that you've raised today. It's huge. Um, The vast majority of the
1: world's people are people of color. Those who are most vulnerable to climate change are people of color. But the obstacle has been that the connections that I just pointed out today are rarely articulated. That needs to change. There are organizations that are already making change. For example, the term climate justice, as it has been used in the United States, was coined in large part by the NAACP. They were the ones who, after Hurricane Katrina, immediately made the connection between poverty, discrimination, housing, Um, and displacement as a result of climate change so I think we have a long way to go but I think it's a movement that has tremendous potential because if you're here and you're a student your future is at stake you have an incentive to connect the dots and forge the only thing that will make change which is a powerful social justice movement
0: thank you All right. the next question Will the U.S. face a climate refugee crisis in the coming decades? If so, what is a just approach to addressing such a crisis domestically?
1: Absolutely. Every country of the world will face a a climate refugee crisis. What is really disturbing is that presently 80% of the world's refugees are living in the global south, in countries that actually don't have the resources to actually care for this population. A climate-just solution, in my view, requires the countries that contributed the most to climate change to do two things. One, to open up their borders in proportion to their responsibility for the problem. Anything short of that is not a just solution. Thrusting it on the global south, saying to Mexico, no, you take all of the Central American refugees, or to Turkey, you take all of the Syrians. Absolutely unacceptable. Secondly, people want to make choices about where they go. So in many instances, they may not want to go to Australia. They may want to go someplace else. In which case, a just solution involves countries that contributed the most to climate change making funds available to the countries that are hosting refugees in order to make sure that that their conditions are adequate and that they have full opportunities to participate in that society.
0: Thank you. The next question Though it also has structural problems related to race and class, I often think of the UN as an intergovernmental body capable of mounting a socially coherent response to climate change. And yet, it seems to lack legal and fiscal teeth to do so fast enough. That said, how might the IMF or World Trade Organization be reimagined and restructured to promote climate justice?
1: Mm. Oh that is such a wonderful question and it gets to the heart of the problem. The problem with organizations like the IMF and the World Trade Organization is that they're premised on a fallacy and that is the fallacy of unlimited economic growth. Unlimited economic growth is impossible given the constraints of the planet's ecosystems. We need to enhance the quality of life, not the amount of materials that we consume and then expel in the form of waste. So we would take a radical re-envisioning, a complete change in what we consider progress, what we consider the good life. But there are things that can be done in the short term that have not been done. Interestingly, um, the WTO prohibits subsidies. Some of the greatest subsidies in the world are fossil fuel subsidies. If countries would take the initiative and challenge them before the WTO, they would win. Unfortunately, that that challenge has not occurred because most countries subsidize the fossil fuel industry and would be on the receiving end of that challenge themselves. So at the end of the day, nothing short but a rethinking of what constitutes a good life is what's necessary.
0: The next question. Critics of climate justice often argue that framing the climate crisis as a justice problem will stall movements to solve the problem. What do you think? Do climate justice movements have the potential to spark more urgent actions and solutions?
1: I think the problem up until now is that the messenger on climate change has been the scientific community. And that's appropriate. They have the knowledge. They have the knowledge to tell us the physical problem. They don't have the skills and the knowledge to address the social and political and economic dimensions of the problem. Climate change is fundamentally about values. It's not a technical problem that can be solved with better technologies. It's a social problem. Um, The reason the climate movement has failed so far is that it has been narrow a narrow environmental movement rather than a broad justice movement. Without making the connections to other social justice struggles, the analysis is incomplete. Incomplete and not compelling. Um, So absolutely, I think that a broad justice movement is what will make change. The UN has been working on this issue for more than 30 years, and we don't have a lot to show for it. It's time to try something else. Greta Thunberg has been very critical of those um, who are working on the Green New Deal for not taking seriously the impossibility of unlimited economic growth, for developing a program based on this logical fallacy. And so the question is, is there someone working on the Green New Deal who we could appeal to, who we could, who we could contact for, for a more thoughtful approach? Um, I'm not close enough to the policymaking on that, and the Green New Deal is, um, is a work in progress. So I would say the key place where you want to focus your attention is on your member of Congress or a member of Congress or senator that you can influence because this is now in the halls of Congress um, and is being worked out as a concrete proposal. At this point, it's more in the aspirational stages, which is great because this is the opportunity to intervene and to make sure, because that criticism is correct, to make sure that we're actually taking the real constraints into account. I know people who are working at the margins of it, but not at the heart of it. So I'm not in contact with those who are at the heart of developing the Green New Deal. So if you want to look at which members of Congress have led it, it's Senator Markey from Massachusetts and Representative Ocasio-Cortez from New York. So you should certainly be in touch with them and with their
0: staff. But there's, there's larger staff behind this and working on this, and I'm not in touch with them. So the question is, do you think the Green New Deal is working in the right direction toward the issues addressed, or is it just rhetoric?
1: It's too early to to take a position because it's in its infancy. So I would say, is it a step in the right direction? Absolutely. This is the first attempt to meld the social and the environmental. And that is what is necessary. The question is then going to be, is it just going to be a a Band-Aid that really doesn't do anything, or will it have real teeth to make change?
0: So the question is, do you think the scale of climate change, because of all the sort of tentacles that it involves, makes it an easier problem to address or a harder problem to address?
1: Historically harder problem, because we've been using the wrong tools. We've been dealing with it as as a narrow scientific and technical problem that somehow we're going to solve without having any change at all um, within countries or between countries. Um, So historically... It makes it harder. I think currently the only potential, I think the the promise is very great because the connections are starting to be developed. And it's those connections and the possibility of forging a movement that makes it possible to address the problem because the problem is not going to be addressed in isolation. You can't address climate change without addressing the foundational causes of the problem, but that's what unites people who are engaged in different struggles and have not seen that there are common roots to the issues that they're fighting. This is the opportunity we have with climate change, if it's managed properly. And part of getting back to the Green New Deal issue, there are two distinct issues going on there. One is, will the the programs that develop from it be adequate to address the problem? But there's also a second part, and that is, will just the language be enough to point people in the direction of making those connections and coming together in the alliances that are necessary to solve the problem. And I'm optimistic that we're starting to take steps in that direction. We're nowhere near where we need to be, but the connections are being made. And so I think there is great potential, if climate change is viewed not as a technical problem, but as a social problem, to unite people who have never, never seen each other as allies, but need to see each other as allies.
0: So the question or the suggestion is for experts such as Professor Gonzalez to write to the politicians involved in the Green New Deal and give them advice. That actually
1: is happening. There's an organization called the Center for Progressive Reform that brings together environmental law faculty at all of the nation's law schools and is in the process of... Developing concrete proposals, making arrangements to testify before Congress when things come up that are relevant to the Green New Deal. So that is absolutely very much in the works. I personally know of it. I have not yet been involved in it, but others are.
0: The implications of geoengineering on climate justice and race is the question. Do people know what geoengineering
1: is? Geoengineering. It's a um, it views climate change as a technical problem that can be um, solved by just modifying the planet. So for example, if you pour sulfate particles into the atmosphere so as to mimic a volcanic eruption, what that does is it blocks the sun. And therefore, we have, there's less warming because the sun is not able to reach the Earth. There's some unfortunate consequences of doing that, such as photosynthesis of plants and our food system and agriculture. So some of the proposals that are being developed for geoengineering the planet are frightening um, because of the environmental impacts and also the impacts on human rights that they're likely to have. And in my view, this is yet another attempt to deal with climate change as a technical problem that with the right technology, we can just make it go away. And the question we have to ask again is, who benefits from this? Who is proposing this? And who stands to gain from it? And who stands to lose? And are we thinking through fully the consequences of implementing this technology? Are you talking about genocide? That's, I see it that way, too. That if we don't have a policy to deal with the strong likelihood that there will be mass migration, the result will be genocide. Um, I didn't... I didn't use those words in my presentation, so I thank you for your question, for putting it very bluntly and openly. Yes, and we need to be thinking about our role if we allow that to happen again. It is. um, Currently, it's the largest contributor, but historically, it's not. So I think when we think about what a fair share is, we need to think about China and India as well as the United States, the European Union, et cetera. When you look at historic emissions, it's important to think historically because carbon dioxide resides in the atmosphere for more than 200 years. So some of the climate change we're experiencing now is a function of the Industrial Revolution that brought us the prosperity that we have currently. So, but absolutely, equitable means in relation to contributions to the problem.
0: So the question relates to the earlier question, which was about countries outside the global north, such as China and India, and their responsibility. So this question relates to international competition and how countries can sort of transcend that to start to cooperate to create solutions.
1: It's, a, it's the toughest of all questions because that has been the obstacle. Historically, it's been China and the United States pointing the finger at each other. Well, I can't do anything because China's not doing anything. And China looks at the U.S. and says, I can't do anything because the U.S. isn't doing anything. For one brief moment, Xi Jinping and Obama appeared to breach that conflict. But now we're several steps back um, from where we were. I think that is absolutely essential. I I think countries need to start looking at this with the same considerations that they looked at the prospect of mutual annihilation through nuclear weapons, that it's in no one's interest to continue the status quo. But I don't think that's going to happen without grassroots demands for change.
0: And with that, we truly are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us for the Higgs Lecture featuring Garmin Gonzalez.